0: Well, good evening. Welcome to our continuing study of the letter to the Ephesian Christians from about 62 AD. Uh, We are uh, getting into kind of the application part of the letter and that's what we'll be doing the next, next few weeks. But let me say a prayer before we get started and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. We're grateful that we have the opportunity to study your word. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for our world. We pray for the disunity and the divisiveness. And I pray, Father, that you might raise up leaders that will have their hearts turned toward you, that you would bless their efforts for peace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as always, this is the number you can text questions to during class. It's on your handout. It's also on your digital handout. So the letter to the Ephesians is broken up into six chapters. And of course, when it was originally written, there were no chapters. It was over a thousand years later that people put chapter divisions in to help find verses, basically. But the first half is what we've finished. And the first half has some really powerful things to say. I want to remind you of what it has to say. Paul opens by saying, That we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, meaning we have been blessed with everything that really matters for eternity. Everything that's gonna be here long after our bodies die, we have been blessed beyond this life. That God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that Jesus ransomed us, redeemed us, paid so that we could be freed from sin and the, the bondage of the life of self-orientation. And finally, that the Holy Spirit seals us as a down payment, if you will, that God will make good on his promise of being with us eternally. And so the Spirit himself lives inside of us and is at work inside of us. Well, in chapter two, he goes on to say, he says, and this is really a powerful message. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And it's good news because we used to be dead Virtually dead in our sins and our trespasses when we used to follow the way of this world, when we used to indulge our minds and our hearts and the desires of our flesh, whether it's greed or pride or fame or lust or whatever desires, those things dominated our lives. But God made us alive in Jesus Christ. And You get this beautiful sense of God himself because he loved us with such a lavish love made a way for us to be reconciled to him. That all who place their trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done, now, chapter 2 says, you have become citizens of God's kingdom and all your earthly divisions of Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, male and female, all those things have been erased with your common citizenship. And even more than that, you've been adopted into God's family. And so the first half of Ephesians is just overwhelmingly powerful description of who we are in Christ. And I would just urge you to think on that. Everything else in the letter of Ephesians, because as of this lesson, chapter four, it's gonna turn and it's going to talk about a number of things, implications of what's in the first few chapters. But everything we're gonna talk about in all the next lessons only apply to those whom he's described in the first few chapters. In other words, we're gonna talk about unity in this lesson as an implication of that. But we're not gonna talk about unity for everybody in the world. Everything he's talking about is because this is who you are, these are the implications. So in chapter four, we're gonna talk about in this lesson, what then does it mean to have unity? Since we're in the same family now, we are in God's family, what does it mean to be united? In our next lesson, we're gonna talk about, because Ephesians talks about, what does it look like to live in a manner worthy of being in God's family? Then, Paul's gonna go on and say, and I wanna talk to you about gender roles, the roles of male and female, now that you are citizens in God's kingdom and that you are members of his family. And the lesson after that will be about social justice. What does socioeconomic differences, what does justice look like now that you're in God's family? And then finally, he's going to say, given the reality of Satan and hell, how does that affect you as a member of God's family and a member of the kingdom of God. So this, this second half begins to talk about the implications of everything that's happened. And it's talking about the implications for those who have now been adopted into God's family. So chapter four, verse one turns with a therefore and everything that leads up to it is given that that is true, that that is who you are, that you've been saved, this is in chapter two, you've been saved or rescued by God's grace through placing your trust in Christ. Given that that's true, what then does life look like? So I wanna look at just a few verses that talk about unity and then I wanna come forward to today and I wanna answer the question, And that is, given the state of the church today and our seeming division into a lot of denominations, what then is that saying about us in light of what Ephesians has to say? So let's read chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, remember, the apostle Paul is writing this from, he's arrested in Rome about 62 AD And since he's arrested, he can't go travel or preach, so he's writing letters. He wrote a number of letters to a number of churches at this time. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you to live, this is a euphemism, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, Now, remember, he's talking to fellow Christians, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Just a beautiful. Implication, He says, given that this is true, you now are called in gentleness and humility and patience to live in a unity of the spirit of God. Goes on, he says, and grace was given to each one of us according to God's gifts. And it begins to talk about the way, when I say the church, I mean that in a, in a very New Testament sense. And so I don't mean a building, I don't mean a gathering of people, I don't even mean a denomination. What I mean is the collection of the people in chapter one, two, and three, the collection of the people who've been saved by grace through faith, whatever building they may be in. That make sense? So when I say the church, the New Testament, when it uses the word church, is talking about those people. So he says he gave some people to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds and teachers, why? To equip the saints. Who are the saints, by the way? That word literally means, uh, most of you probably know this, but sometimes I take things for granted. Everywhere you see the word saints in the New Testament, it literally means the holy people, the set-apart people, the special people, All the people in chapters one, two, and three are saints. In other words, Christ followers are saints in the New Testament. So he's talking about all these people. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, so that we grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, now that we have been adopted into the family, just like children in a family, we're going to grow up. But we're not just gonna grow up wild, we're gonna grow up like a member of this family. We're going to grow up, as Romans uh, chapter eight will say, to really be the spitting image, if you will, of Jesus Christ. That's how we're being Parented, just to use this metaphor. One more. Why? So that we may no longer be children, so obviously we're growing up in maturity by the knowledge and the unity that we find in Christ, so that we may no longer be children, and like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, that we will be mature enough not to be led off into something that's not a Christ follower, that's not biblical, that is not the way we do things in God's family. So we're growing up so that we're mature members of God's family. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That's Jesus, from whom the whole body, all the believers, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this little passage is not hard to understand. What it's saying is one of the implications, the first implication of being a member of Christ's body and I'm gonna, that's a synonym for being a Christ follower, for being saved by grace, in other words, being part of the body of Christ, is that we are characterized by, by unity as we grow in maturity in the faith, that we are unified, all of us as family members. This is not an estranged family. There are no crazy uncles There are no parts of this family that don't speak to other parts of this family. In other words, this is a picture of growing up into unity in Christ. That makes sense? So here's the hitch. So we have a lot of denominations, right? And so this is just a question that comes up and I think it's worth playing this out because I get asked this a lot and a lot of questions around Christian unity A lot of questions around this idea of maturing in Christ, uh, false teachers, deceitful schemes. All of this is really addressed here in this idea of unity and what unity looks like. So here's an interesting little chart. And so I thought at first I'd start by just a very basic definition of where did these denominations come from? That's not ideal. There we go. Where did these denominations come from? And so let's start, and this is a very rough chart, but even so, you can see there's there's quite a bit of division here. You start with the early church. Think about the book of Acts in the New Testament that describes the early church in the first 30 years or so uh, after Christ, 30 plus years. At some point, this morphs into the Roman Catholic Church. Just, we're speaking historically now. Now, if you're Catholic, I know that the Catholic point of view is Peter was the first pope, and it's always been the Roman Catholic Church. I understand that. If you're Protestant, you'll say that the Roman Catholic Church began that structure. uh, The first person you could really identify as a pope was about 500 A.D., I understand that there are different points of view depending on your background on this. So over time, the Roman church split into, and I'm going to draw some lines here just so you can see how this plays out. So this whole piece is the Orthodox church. You get the Eastern Orthodox church, then of course you get all the Orthodox churches, Ukrainian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. All kinds of Orthodox churches. So, why did this split occur? This split occurred pretty early. This is terrible dating, but think maybe with the fall of the Western Roman Empire, you know. So, think uh, certainly by 1000 AD, you're going to see some big changes here. And basically, geographic splits have happened. That's interesting, isn't it? Unplugged. Replug, thank you. There we go. Doesn't seem to be switching. For those of you on the audio, a little technical difficulty here, probably caused by me, would be my guess. So <laughs> Uh, I'm going to tell you about just a little bit about the Eastern Orthodox. We'll get back to the whole point of unity. But when the Roman Empire, you had the Roman Catholic Church, historically speaking, half the Roman Empire fell, the Western part of the Roman Empire. Think Rome, you know, Rome fell to the, to the Vandals and, and a variety of other uh, peoples. And so when that happened, You go, you need my face, don't you? (laughs) There we go. Excellent, thank you very much. (laughs) Top-notch support. So when that happened, the Roman Catholic Christians could no longer really communicate with the Christians in Constantinople, Byzantium, Istanbul. That city's had variety of names over time. And so they they just cut off. They just couldn't communicate. Because, you know, one side was pagan and the other side was Christian. They had wars with each other. They just, I mean, the internet broke down. You just could not email back and forth. And so they drifted apart. But that's why the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox and Catholic look eerily alike in some ways and eerily different in others, Okay. So that was less a doctrinal split originally. I'm painting with a really broad brush here. But it was more of a geopolitical thing that just split them up. Well, then along comes the uh, Protestant Reformation. So let's say we're in the 1500s roughly. And so you get Martin Luther says, wait a minute, I protest and uh, I, I read the Bible and I don't think the Catholic doctrine's right. And so you get the Lutheran church. You get Henry VIII, and he says, I don't really have theological problems, I got wife problems, so we're starting our own church. It's gonna be the Anglican Church. (laughs) Then you have Calvin and others. I'm just using uh, the main people here. So you have Calvin and others, and you get the Reformed Church. It's also part of the Protestant Reformation, but the Reformed Churches all have a similar uh, theological uh, break. So you get the Church of Scotland, Um, Reformed Church of America, all the Reformed uh, groups kind of come out of it that way. And then think about, let's just think about the Methodists for a minute. So John Wesley in the 1700s is a minister in the Anglican Church in England and realizes this religion is dead. And Wesley begins preaching and you have this reformation, this great awakening in the 1700s. And so you get the Methodist church. Then the Anglican church, when it leaves England, becomes Episcopalian church. And then the Baptists kind of do their Baptist thing over here. And so you've got this branch, if you will. This church, by the way, is on here, Church of God, out of Anderson, Indiana. And it comes from, out of the Methodists, Methodists were rowdier than you think they were. Okay, And there's a holiness movement coming out of it. And when I say holiness, you probably know what I'm talking about. There is a holiness movement in terms of your conduct and a desire to be holy like God, but it also kind of comes with it a more spirit-led way of doing things. And that's the branch that this particular uh, church comes from. You'll see Church of Christ on here. Uh, You'll see a number of things that you recognize. But I've marked that up pretty badly, but you can kind of see how over time things branch off and you end up, and this isn't even close to how many denominations there are. This is just some of the major uh, denominations and some of the major breaks. So we don't have what we would call in the Protestant world a, a denominational unity in the sense that it's not like there's one church. And so you've got the you know, church uh, the New Testament church that meets here and the New Testament church that meets there. its You have different denominational affiliations and they divide over a number of things. Churches divide over doctrinal differences. Churches divide over what is called church polity, how you wanna govern your group of churches. So for example, Church of Christ and Congregationalist churches our congregational model, meaning there is no hierarchy. Uh, you probably can think of Southern Baptists, which have a hierarchy, and you know you support the central, and they support them, and you're you know you basically have a hierarchy. Presbyterians have a session, and then they have uh, various hierarchies up from that. That's been the basis of denominations parting from one another. So there are a lot of reasons that people have come to have different groups of churches, different denominations over time. So what I wanna talk to you about, though, is given that we've been called to unity, I wanna talk about three points for you to think about in terms of answering this question, should we have all these denominations? And what is that saying about our growing up in Christ, our spiritual maturing, you know, going from children to full-grown adults, in to use this metaphor that Paul uses in the family of Christ, do we grow up into spiritual maturity and unity of the spirit? So I want to talk about three things. First one is what is the basis for our unity? What is the basis for Christians? Now we're only we're talking about the people in chapter one, two, and three you should not expect to be unified with people who are not described in chapter one, two, and three, does that make sense? There is no fundamental basis for any kind of lasting unity between those in Christ and those out of Christ. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that people who have not been saved by grace through faith Uh, Jesus, we tend to think of those as people who do not yet know Christ, people that have not placed their trust in Christ. That does not mean these people are your enemies. That is not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying you should not expect to find any basis for lasting unity because you have such very different views of the world. And if you will look at all of history, look at our world today, look at all of history, you won't find, um, hopefully you won't find hostility from Christians towards those who are not. Too often that has been the case, but that's not God-honoring. But you have certainly seen hostility the other direction. My point is, there's not a basis for unity when you see the world so very fundamentally different. So what though for Christians is the basis of our unity and according to the scriptures that we just read, it's, the tr- it's truth and love. Truth and love are the basis for our unity. It's not just truth alone, meaning we do believe in the truth that Jesus is who he says he is, We are who we said that he said we are, and this world is what he describes it to be. It is more than you can see, it is eternal. There is a God the Father who created everything. In other words, the Bible is true. Maybe that's a shorthand way of saying it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he was talking to Pontius Pilate, he said, I came, for this reason I was born. This is really interesting. He said, for this reason I was born, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth follows me. So truth is essential. We are bound by a commitment to truth as God has revealed it to us. But that's not the only thing that's needed because too often truth by itself leads to strife. It can be harsh, it's truth and love. Now love by itself has never historically been enough to bring unity to people. I'll bet there's some people here who can remember the phenomenon in the 1960s called communes. Do You remember that phenomenon in America? It was basically a rebellion against America as it stands and all the divisions in our society and it basically involved uh, taking a lot of drugs and free love and drop out and we're going to live in a commune and we're all going to get along together. Do you see any of those communes around today? No, they failed fairly quickly, why? Because love as the world understands love has never been sufficient to bind any group of people together for any length of time. You know why? Because love as the world understands love cannot overcome the self-centeredness. Remember Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead when you used to walk in the way of this world fulfilling the desires of your mind and the desires of your flesh. And so love as the world understands it is not sufficient. So you, it may feel good to watch a commercial and says, if we'll just all drink a Coke and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, there'll be peace in the world. That has never been historically true. So for Christians, we believe in a particular truth, the truth, God revealed truth, and we partake of God's love, self-sacrificial love. Not an emotional infatuation kind of a love, but a love that chooses good for the beloved. Those two things are the basis for unity, truth and love. That make sense? Okay. So that leads us to back to the denominations. So why do we have them? And where are we disconnecting? Are we disconnecting on the truth? Or are we disconnecting on the love? I wanna make two observations, and here's the first one. You can be wrong without being evil. A person can be wrong without being evil. You can also be evil. There is such a thing as evil in the world, but you can be wrong without being evil. And sometimes our denominational differences are because we think the other person is wrong. And consequently, we can't have fellowship. We can't be united to one another in spirit because we're disagreeing over doctrinal things. Now, some of you are gonna say to me, but wait a minute, Terry, some of these doctrinal things are really important. And that's true. And here comes the dilemma. How do you know when you're just wrong? mistaken, whatever you want to call it, difference of opinion, and how do you know when it really, really matters? And so quite a while back, that just really hit me as the kind of the key dilemma. How then are you and I going to live our lives? How are we going to know? With whom can we have fellowship of the Spirit? What do we need? What truths do we need to agree on to have fellowship in the Spirit? Because we could be wrong. For example, I'm gonna use a trivial example, but let's say that you like a church that sings hymns, and you like a church that has guitars at extremely high decibel levels, right? And you say, I can't go to your church, and you're like, I keep falling asleep in your church. Okay, so is that a big enough thing for us to lose unity of the Spirit over? But there are things we would all agree that are. And so I wanna take some time because I think this is important for a lot of things. And so I wanna look at, when you look at the scriptures, and I wanna look at Jesus and Paul and John and James and Peter. I wanna look at the people that God has chosen to write your New Testament. And I'd like to know where did they draw that line? Because if you think about it, and watch what's gonna happen, there are plenty of times when, let me just start with Jesus. I wanna tell you some people that Jesus dealt with who were wrong, but he did not treat them as though they were evil. He taught them. First example, the woman at the well. And so he meets this woman at the well, she's a Samaritan, and she's uncouth, she's not doing things the right way, she's not a Jew, that's just true. And so he has this conversation with her and part of the conversation, she says to him, you Jews are so stuck up, this is a liberal translation, you Jews are so stuck up that you say the only place to worship is Jerusalem and the only way to worship is what's in the Torah. And Jesus says, that's right, you're wrong. But when Messiah comes, she said, he's gonna unite us. And he goes, I am the Messiah. You follow me and we'll worship in spirit and in truth. So he tells her bluntly, you're wrong about the way you're choosing to worship. But he doesn't say, and you're evil. And by the way, you got a one-way ticket to hell. That's not what he says, is it? He begins to educate her. Think about Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. And you know the Pharisees Got some hard words from Jesus. But Nicodemus comes to see him in John chapter three and he says, I'm really struggling with this, Jesus. You seem to be a teacher that's sent from God, but you and I disagree about so many things. I do not agree with what you're teaching. And so what does Jesus say? You're evil, you're going to hell. That's not what he says. He begins to teach him. And he begins to teach him in ways that leave Nicodemus puzzled, but Nicodemus becomes a follower of Christ over the next three years. And you know that at the end of the story, Nicodemus is there as a believer when Jesus is, after he's crucified. But my point is this. Think about it. He and Nicodemus disagree, but Jesus is not harsh toward him. He educates him. One more example. Woman caught in adultery, uh, John chapter eight. You know, she's caught, she's in the wrong. Of course, the accusers are also in the wrong and two wrongs don't make a right. So what does Jesus do? Jesus comes into the situation and he basically says to those that are about to stone her, you guys are in the wrong and they all walk off. Then the woman's left and she turns to Jesus and he said, stop your sinning and go your way. I'm not gonna condemn you, but you need to stop sinning because You're a dead person walking and unless you repent, you won't be saved. So what does he say to her? You're wrong. He says to them, you're wrong. But is he harsh to her? Not at all. He simply says to her, educates her. He talks to her. He says, you need to be on a different path. Okay, so I'm gonna show you some cases though where Jesus is not that way. And I'd like for us to figure out what makes the difference between being wrong and being evil. So let's look at some scripture. So this is Jesus' couple of passages. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is a harsh statement. This is basically saying, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, and you lead them away from God, this is metaphorical. It basically says the best thing that could happen for you is to drown slowly and suffer. He says that's nothing compared to what's going to happen to you. Let's keep going. The scribes and the Pharisees, he said, sit on Moses' seat, meaning they have the authority of the Torah, so you should do and observe what they tell you don't do what they do because they preach and they do not practice. And Listen to this. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. And finally, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, because you travel across sea and land and make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. This is not your friendly, we have a difference of opinion kind of comments, are they? But notice the thread that's running through this. What the Pharisees were doing, and we're gonna look at a number of scriptures, because as you look through it, it's really important to know what's the difference between wrong and evil. What is our dividing line? And the question is, what was Jesus' dividing line? The Pharisees were basically adding a ton of requirements onto people that they could not keep before they could get to God. In other words, they were standing in between people and finding God by imposing all these extra duties on them. Okay? Let's keep going. This is Jesus again speaking. You may not think about this, but this is Jesus speaking to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2. He said to the angel of the church in Thyatira, I want you to write this. This is what uh, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. I know your works, your love and faith and servant and patient endurance, and that your latter works succeed the first, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, and we've studied this before, this is probably not a woman named Jezebel, listen to what it, how she's described, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, my Christians, my followers, my brothers and sisters, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, to worship idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality or idolatry. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, those who follow her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give each of you according to your works. So this again is not another have a difference of agreement with one of your teachers. This is the opposite problem. This is saying you are taking my children and you are not putting more burdens saying you can't come to God until you get yourself all cleaned up and follow our rules. You're saying you can sin and God doesn't care. So those both of those situations seem to make Jesus very angry compared to the other ones that we just talked about. Keep going, this is Paul. Speaking, and this is—I'm just giving you a few of these. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's uh, writing to the churches in Galatia, a bunch of Christians in Turkey, and he said, and they're basically, there are teachers going around, and they were Christians, but they were telling people, if you want to be a Christian, you actually also—you have to be a Jew first. You got to be circumcised you got to follow 613 laws in the Old Testament then you can be a Christian Does this sound familiar this is putting burdens in their way and Paul really gets ticked off about this he says I testify to every one of you who accept circumcision and decide you're going to be righteous in that way that you got to keep the whole law you are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace Through the spirit by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He goes on, who is the one who is telling you this stuff? This persuasion is not from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's he saying here? He's saying a little bit of this teaching that you can go do this is going to affect all of the believers. He said this is not good leaven, this is influencing. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty for this. So what's he talking about? He's talking about people who are saying you can't have a relationship with Christ until you do all these extra things, getting in the way of people's salvation. First uh, Corinthians 5, this is written to some Christians in Greece. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man has his father's wife and you are happy about it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let the one who has done this be removed from among you. He says, I am present in the spirit and have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver this man over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven can affect everyone? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So what's he saying here? Again, this is just the opposite. Instead of people putting things on them and jeopardizing people's salvation by saying you can go get salvation, but you gotta keep these 613 rules. The opposite side, which says you got salvation, it's free, you can do anything you want. You start to see a pattern here, right? I'm gonna show you the rest anyway because I want you to know that this this is a thread that's a bright line that runs all through the scriptures. What's the difference between being wrong and being evil, and what the scripture seems to be saying is when something gets in the way of your salvation, something begins to jeopardize your salvation, that that's no longer being wrong, that has crossed a line, let's keep going, Uh, this is James, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but doesn't have any works? can that kind of faith actually save you? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in food, and you say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, I'll pray for you, without doing anything for them, what good is that? He says, I'm telling you that faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, if it doesn't regenerate you and make you new, is dead. But someone will say, hey, it's a difference of opinion. You do good works, I have faith. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God, no kidding. Even the demons believe in God. Do you wanna be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And on he goes. What's he saying? Well, he's writing to Jewish Christians, and this letter went all over the place, And what he's saying to them is, some people say, you just need to believe in Jesus Christ and it makes no difference. And his point is, that's not salvation. And you need to quit telling people that it is salvation. Best description of this, any of you that have read Bonhoeffer's work, Cost of Discipleship, he talks about cheap grace. This is, by the way, what Wesley was upset with the Anglican church about is cheap grace. Well, I believe in God, I go to the Anglican church, I'm saved, and Wesley said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what the Bible says. And so you get this idea of, it gets very, very harsh to those who are keeping people or misleading people about salvation. Uh, This is John. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that an antichrist is coming, now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were never of us. They were never uh, followers of Christ. They were never saved, for if they'd been of, of us, they would have stayed, but they went out that it became plain that they were not one of us. He said, and I'm writing this letter about those who are trying to deceive you. These people that were talking to the Christians in uh, over in Turkey where John was at this time What they were saying is that your spirit is saved by God, and you need to believe in God. You need to believe the truth. But you can do anything you want with your body. In other words, your body, it's going to corrupt anyway. It's a throwaway. Do whatever you want. It's kind of like, now be honest, have you ever had a rental car? Maybe you didn't treat it quite as well as you would treat your car. Well, that's the way they thought about this body. You can do anything you want in this body. Sexual immorality doesn't touch your spirit. And John's like, whoa, you know, that is very harsh. That's deceiving. And then he goes on to talk about they'll receive their reward. Uh, Peter, false prophets arose among the people in, in olden times, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now he's not talking about we're gonna have disagreements. A false teacher is not someone that says, Well, I think this, and you go, but I think that. Just think Wesley and Calvin. You neither know, one of them is a false teacher. One or both of them might be wrong, but neither of them are saying something to you that will keep you from being saved, right? It doesn't seem to cross this line. Well, these people do. Listen, he said they secretly bring in destructive heresies, divisions even denying the master who bought them, meaning Jesus is not divine, Jesus isn't the only way to God. This is the kind of things they're teaching. Bringing on themselves swift destruction, but many people will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be held in dishonor, be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is just waiting for them. In other words, they're already toast. They just don't know it yet. Is God will not deal lightly with them. Does that make sense? So you you begin to see kind of what what the line is here. Uh, Jude, one final thing. Jude says this, beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I actually found it necessary to write you about the false teachers about the common faith that we have. For certain people have crept in amongst the believers who long ago were destined for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny the lordship of Christ. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so what's he saying here? He's saying these people are leading you away from Jesus Christ. So I know that's probably a little overkill, but I really wanted you to know every single writer in the New Testament talks about this. And so our fundamental question is, you can be wrong without being evil. How do you know the difference? The bright line in the New Testament for Jesus and for Paul and James and Peter and John and Jude clearly appears to be on issues of salvation, okay? So, what can break the basis for us to have unity with one another? And I would argue that the New Testament says those things that affect our salvation. That's not a big group of things. When, if we go back to that chart of all the denominations, you're really going to struggle to find something over which we have divided are our allegiances that has to do with salvation. There are issues like that in the world and there are divisions like that, but that's not the majority of things. So our first question is, what's the basis for our unity? It's truth and love. That when it comes to dividing, what is acceptable to, for us to divide over? Not when we have differences of opinion and we are wrong, only when the New Testament says, this is a line that you've crossed. Well, that probably should be getting our attention a little bit and saying, wow, you know what? We probably have expanded that quite a bit in our disunity, and that may indicate a certain spiritual immaturity on our part. Well, I have one other thing I wanna talk to you about along unity, because this is important. You need to think about, there's a difference between being wrong and evil. Not everybody that disagrees with us is evil. Not everybody that disagrees with us is someone that we cannot have Christian unity with, that we cannot fellowship with. Second concept, unity is not the same thing as conformity. Unity is not the same thing as conformity. If you think about a totalitarian government, this is not true in China. Unity is conformity. There's one way to do it. You will do it that way or you will die. And so conformity is the basis for their unity. Is conformity the basis of our unity? No. Truth and love. We do conform. I guess you could say that if you want to, but we fundamentally agree about truth and we agree about that. But our unity isn't conformity. Nowhere does it say that we must all do everything exactly the same way. Think about that. There are a lot of different liturgies. I'm just use a really innocuous example. There are a lot of different liturgies, aren't there? If you've been to uh, an Episcopalian church, they've got a more structured liturgy. If you've been to a Lutheran church, they have a little bit of a different liturgy. You've been to a church like ours, you think, oh, we don't have a liturgy. Sure we do. We definitely have a liturgy. We have two songs, we have announcements, we have another song, we have the offering, we have a service and an optional song after. That's our liturgy. It just isn't real liturgical. It's not high church, but it's a liturgy, isn't it? We have different liturgies, and I'm, I'm being a little silly here because I just wanna make this point. None of us would think, oh, well, that's, a, that's enough reason for us not to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course you wouldn't think that. So I'm exaggerating a little, but my point is is that we don't have to conform in every degree to be unified. So let me pause and catch up with a few questions because I imagine there's... A, you should probably, I know this is probably soaking in and maybe a little heavy, but when you talk about the idea of Christian unity, this is actually worth a little thought as to why are we not unified. There are some legitimate reasons, but maybe not as many as we think. Question? So where do you draw the line? Would you consider us to be in unity with the Mormons? Good question. So now we're starting to name names. I see where you wanna go with this, okay. (laughs) so the line is a, is a clear line in scripture hopefully I showed you, and this isn't all I just, but I wanted to pick a broad spectrum, of, and you can look at that and you go, I see it, I mean it may be extra rules, it may be you can do what you want, what we call legalism or license, but it's not true, right and that is what, and that affected people's salvation so that was a legitimate breaker of the unity. Uh, In other words, Christ thought so, and so did all the writers. So, When you take something like Mormonism, I don't wanna talk about Mormon people, because I don't know what Mormon people believe, but I will tell you that as a set of doctrines, Mormon doctrine is not consistent with what the New Testament teaches on some essential things the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, certain essential things about God. Not, I mean, there are probably also things you disagree about that are not essential, but some of those things are. And so Mormon doctrine, the doctrine of the Mormon church, the additional revelations beyond Jesus Christ, those things are, are not consistent. And I'm not giving you a value judgment and I'm not mad at anybody. That just is what it is. It simply isn't consistent. Now, as far as Mormon people, I'm, I'm not the judge. and But I will say that that doctrine in some important respects differs with what Jesus taught. At this point, there's a slight chance I won't be here next week. I, I just... <laughs> I don't want you to feel like there's any hostility or anything like that. I just want to tell you the truth. And that is that that what you believe, truth, what you believe, and how you conduct yourself, love, matter. Question. Yes. So how do you determine what is a doctrinal disagreement or a salvation issue? What are the essentials? Well... I did a series on this, so instead of answering it here, if you go to resources.crossings.church, what every Christian must believe is a series out there that will get you started on that. And I'm I'm sorry, that sounds like I'm shuffling it off, but just in the interest of time, there's certain core doctrines about who is God, who are we, who is Jesus Christ. I mean, here's the fundamental confession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus is our savior, is he also our Lord? Jesus said, if you love me, then do what I command. So there are certain essentials of of the faith uh, that evolve around what does it take for you to be saved and what does it take for you to live a life that is consistent, that's worthy of your calling, that's consistent with who you are. And so, uh, sorry, that's probably an inadequate answer, but with seven minutes left, probably... I don't want to repeat that whole series, but you'll find that series, What Every Christian Must Believe. And again, that sounds kind of harsh, but what it is is it's trying to put a little bit of a box around what are some of the essentials that, that mark Christianity to be Christianity. Hmm? Does a church or a denomination's view of Scripture fit into this category? Yes, does a church's view of Scripture fit into this category? It does because of what it leads to. Let me give you an example. So we believe that the New Testament, I'm just gonna talk about the New Testament for a minute, not because I don't believe in the Old Testament, I just wanna focus our discussion about this. We believe that that is God's revelation to us, that it is the inspired Word of God and that it is true. And so that belief about what the scripture is means that we know that what Jesus tells us is true. Well, that's kind of important, isn't it? He made some pretty big claims about eternity and about what it takes for us to be transferred from death to life. And so that is, that is inspired. We believe that that is true. We believe that all of the scripture is true, not just a part of it's true and a piece is not true or just the parts I like are true. So what churches believe about the scripture does end up becoming an essential matter because some churches believe, for example, a little bit of the scripture is true, this part of the scripture is not true. And the point I would make is that, that has some fundamental problems about whether or not you actually believe what Jesus said, but it ends up putting you in a position of you judge how you're gonna serve God and which parts of the revelation actually came from God and I'll decide which parts I want. It ends up leading you to very dangerous places. So that is a hugely important issue. Many times when If I I were gonna be a false teacher, easiest way to be a false teacher is I'm just gonna rip a couple pages out and convince you that those don't apply anymore. That's the, almost every false teacher you see, that's what effectively happens. Well, that part's not true anymore. That part used to be true. That part isn't really describing what we do today. In other words, I would take part of the scripture and throw it away and keep the rest. And that's what those people were doing that all those passages talk to you about. They said, well, your spirit is what gets saved. You can do anything you want with your body. It's like, whoa, Jesus would be shocked at that because that's not what he said. You see what I'm saying? So that is very dangerous because of where it leads people to. Great question. So unity is not the same thing as conformity. And here's a great little saying. This is one of the the things that appealed to me about this church and about this tradition. And this isn't the only church that has this tradition. So I'm not making uh, you know, just a rah-rah for this church. It's a great church. But my point is there are many Christians that believe this. This is not inspired. This is from a Lutheran theologian in the 1600s. And he looked at this same issue and he said, in the essentials of our faith, we must be unified. There are certain truths that we have to agree with. In the non-essentials of our faith, we can disagree without breaking fellowship with one another. In other words, we can still be one in the bond of spirit. And to be fair, a little humility goes a long way, is that I may disagree with someone about a certain issue that isn't an essential issue, it's not a salvation issue, and maybe I'll say, you know what, I might be wrong. But being wrong is not, Enough for us to no longer be brothers and sisters in Christ. And in everything, love. Charity in the 1600s meant love. And that's true, isn't it? You have the essentials of truth in everything. We have love for one another. And in everything that's in the middle, we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. So coming all the way around to our denominational issue, I would argue based on the scripture, you're getting Terry's opinion now based on what we've talked about is I do not believe that we can have a unity of the spirit with people who do not hold to truth and love in the essentials of the Christian faith. are just some things that aren't Christian and we do not have a basis for unity. I believe those are not very many things on that chart. I think all of the other things, we can continue to have a unity of the spirit, but we don't have to have conformity. So this is gonna sound a little crazy to you, but I actually think it's a good thing that not all of our churches do things the right way because we have preferences and there's nothing wrong. And that's the position of this church is it's the tradition of Crossings uh, Community Church that we do certain things a certain way and we have certain beliefs about disputable issues, not essentials of the faith, And this is the way we are going to do church. You might say, that is really not in line with my preferences, and you know what? There's a church a mile from here who agrees with you in all of the essentials, but their tradition is a little closer to mine, so I love you, shake your hand, no hard feelings. I think I'll worship over here. But we, do you understand that that doesn't mean that we have broken the bond of the unity of the spirit It is when we say you're them and we're us. No, no. It's like you have some preferential differences. We see certain non-essential things a little bit differently. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I don't have a problem with having churches that have different traditions. St. Elijah's, Eastern Orthodox. They got incense, makes me sneeze. I love them. But I sneeze too much. And I'm not trying to be facetious. Great people there. There are uh, various things. And what do we disagree about? Well, it's not the essentials of the faith. Well, then let's have charity. Let's have love towards one another. And let's realize we may worship in a different style. We may even disagree on some things. But they are not the things that are gonna keep us from being brothers and sisters in heaven. Does that make sense? Am I being Pollyanna? I just wanna answer this question the way I think the scripture does. Is it good that we have so many denominations? Probably not good that we feel such distance from one another when our differences are not on essential items. If they are, then you saw how Jesus and everyone else dealt with that. But most of the time, that's not what they are. And in that case, let's have a little more love. Let's have a little more, you know what, we may disagree and you may do some things differently, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's an example that I think will have a big impact on the world, okay? So that's what Christian unity is about. Not that we all do everything the same, not that we all even agree on everything. We will be wrong. I know I'm probably mistaken about some of the things I believe in the Bible, but we must be right on the essentials of the faith. And the essentials of the faith are so clear. This was not written to scholars. In fact, I would argue that it takes a scholar to misunderstand the essentials of the faith. (laughs) Only a scholar misunderstands the essentials of the faith. This is written to uneducated people in the first century. They didn't seem to have any trouble figuring out what I need to do to be saved. Neither should we. But sometimes I think we let the preferential things get in between us. And that's probably a lack of maturity on our part. And I say that not to convict you, I say that to convict us, and that is let's look a little more kindly on others who just do things a little differently than we do, but we have all the essentials in common, okay? That, believe it or not, was the easy one because next week, Paul is going to talk about a number of things. He's gonna say, here's here's a great way to think about your Christian walk your Christian life, now that I've been saved by grace through faith, what then do you want me to do, God? That's what Paul's gonna talk about. But here's a great way of thinking about it, is you just got adopted into the family, and you are so curious, and you are so eager to learn, how do we do things in this family? Because I so wanna be like mom and dad, and I wanna be a child in this family. How do we do things in this family? That's what Paul is going to talk about next week is how do we do things in this family? How do you live in a manner worthy of your calling? So wing it this week, but next week you will know for sure what you should be doing. I'll see you guys next time.